back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Podcast. I am Abby Mickey. We are sans Kaylee Frets today, but we have the rest of the regular crew. Dane, hello. We're seen Kaylee Frets. It's the Vuelta. We need to be, we need to update our language here. Sorry, you're right. <laughs> we are uh, in the three weeks of Spanish. Yeah, yeah. David Everett, shoddy. Hello. 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 You've got a haircut. It's wild. Yeah. Well, happy with it because the the past, I don't know, 35 haircuts I've had have been terrible. So I'm not complaining too much. <laughs> James, hello. Hi, Abby. And last but definitely not least, Ronan. Hiya. <laughs> Are you? You know, just back in my chair. Uh, you know, Abby, you're kind of camouflaged in that chair with, yeah, what, with what you're wearing right now. Like you, we can't, I know, we my can't, dress kind of matches. We can, it, it doesn't even just kind of match. It almost looks like it was made from the same fabric. <laughs> How cool would that be? You're totally camouflaged. Yeah. I did for a second when I saw myself in the in the, in the the uh, screen. I was like, oh, man, it looks like we got shoulder pads. Yeah, it looks like Wes Anderson's dressed you on your chair. <laughs> anyway... I'm really excited for the French Dispatch. That's going to be a great movie. Not the point. Today we're going to discuss the Vuelta, everything that happened since the last episode, and Arbea has a new bike. But before we get into that, Shadi, you got any uh, Continental tidbits for us? I do indeed. Right, this episode is brought to you in partnership with Continental, like all the episodes this year. Right, so let's talk about Continental GP5000. The follow-up to Conti's hugely successful GP4000 tyres. Continental GP5000 tyres have quickly surpassed the GP4000s as the tyre of choice for training and racing. You'll already know that GP5000 tyres are made with Conti's Bacchili compound laser grip and Vectran, but did you know... That the GP5000 tires also use active comfort technology. This revolutionary approach to cycling tires is embedded in the tire construction. Active comfort technology absorbs vibrations and smoothens your ride. Hang on, is smoothens actually a word? Smoothens? Smoothens. Doesn't sound right, but we'll go with it anyway. Active comfort technology absorbs vibrations, smoothens your ride, meaning you can not only ride faster, but more comfortably. The GP5000 is available in black or black and transparent sidewalls, ranging between 25mm to 32mm in width. So... To put it simply, Conti GP5000 tyres are made to make you better. As always, we'd like to thank Continental for, for supporting this episode. Is smoothens a word? Smoothen? Smooth. S- smooth. Smooth. I think it's a word. When I read it yes. first time, I was like, hang on, is that a word? Just didn't sound right when I first said it. But hey, Continental smoothens are rolled out. That's all you need to know, people. I don't know, Dane. Is it a word? Dane's the resident. Uh, well, uh, Merriam-Webster says it is, so I'm gonna get, I'm gonna go with that. You know. There you go. Well, the biggest news talking point of the episode is going to be the Vuelta a España, which we are one week out from our last episode. 
ton has happened. Dane, do you want to break it down for us? Sure. Yeah, I'll break it down. Uh, let's talk GC first and how Primus Roglic has continued to separate himself in the in the general classification battle. He came in as the top favorite, and he has performed like the top favorite. Uh, he, of course, won the opening TT and, and has just been the, the strongest or right up there among the strongest GC riders in the climbs every day since. Uh, so, yeah, after... Nine days of racing, he's up by 28 seconds on Enric Mas, which is an interesting development. We'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, with Miguel Angel Lopez in third at 121 down. So the vaunted Ineos Grenadiers team, which includes Egan Bernal, Adam Yates, and Richard Carapaz, uh, is not the closest challenger to Roglic. Uh, Bernal struggled a little bit on stage nine, and Yates has lost time in other spots, although he's looked good on the climbs, mostly. Uh, both of them are, well, Bernal, 152 down, and Yates, 207 down. So Roglic already has a pretty hefty lead on on those guys. Uh, it, it looks like maybe Movistar has, has kind of taken over as the as the team that's giving him the biggest challenge here. Um, so I don't know, maybe we talk about Movistar first, uh, because that's, that's an interesting development. This is not a team that has been uh, that effective, in the Grand Tours recently, they've gone to Grand Tours with multiple leaders over and over again, and those strategies have not worked. Uh, the Vuelta has been a race that they've tended to do quite well at, and they're up there right now. Henrik Moss looked really good on Stage 9, and he has been, I think, the only climber in this race who's consistently been up there um, and, and able to hold on on, on all of the, uh, I guess, three hard climbing days, maybe three and a half, four climbing days so far in this race, uh, which is I mean, Movistar has to be happy about that because they, they need to do well in their home Grand Tour. Uh, unfortunately, they lost uh, Alejandro Valverde to a broken collarbone in a pretty serious crash, it, although it could have been worse uh, the other day. But they do have two riders in the top three right now, and now it's we're going to see if that you know multiple-leader approach can really work. Uh, it's, it's no longer a trident. It's more of a carving fork. But I think that... Uh, I think it's going to provide some entertainment here in, in the last... Well... There are 12 days of the race here, so that's something to look forward to. I think uh, they have talked a little about the value of, of teamwork and how they're going to need some teamwork to take over Roglic uh, because he's looking so strong. He's got a good team around him as well, uh, Sepp Kuss and, and Steven Kreuzwick. Um, I don't know how I felt about the way they rode on Stage 9. Enric Moss was doing a lot of work. Uh, he got away with Roglic there late, and he was pushing at the front with Roglic while his own teammate was back behind him, and it kind of felt like that was not a smart thing to do. Uh, so yes, he separated himself from everybody that wasn't Primus Roglic, but it very much seemed like business as usual for Movistar for uh, Moss to be pushing the pace there and leaving his own teammate behind. I don't know how I felt about that. I mean, that seems pretty on brand, but it was, of course, we won't, the race isn't over until it's over, but for a few days there, Movistar looked pretty amazing, regardless of what questionable tactics went in a couple times during the first, you know, week or so. It was a real bummer to see um, Valverde crash out and very, very, very lucky that he didn't hit the metal barricade on the side of the road. That was kind of a one of those 
freak incidents where, yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Um, but he just happened to slide underneath that. And the moment that his, his teammate was helping him kind of scramble up the side of the hill and he tried to keep going and, and couldn't, couldn't really keep going. Um, we still don't officially know what he's doing next year. This might be his last grand tour. It's definitely not. But if we were going by, um, what he said in January, he would be retiring at the end of this year. Although he, then he said in June that he wasn't. So who knows if this was his last grand tour appearance, except for him. Um, but yeah, definitely a bummer to see Valverde out. Trident falls apart, but never like that. Whatever about their tactics until now, I think going forward now with, uh, is it three or four summit finishes left in the race before that final, uh, time trial uh the movie star tudent or fork or whatever whatever it is, that that pairing they they really are going to have to play a team tactic to try and overhaul roglitz now i think and and they're sort of perfectly positioned after yesterday to do you know mass is just under 30 seconds behind and then lopez a bit further back and you know second and third really isn't good enough for movie star and, and the vuelta they're going to have to try and you know play some sort of card because I think Roglic has proved that, you know, first of all, he didn't have to prove they're not going to take time out of him in the time trial, but he's also proven the race so far that he is every bit as strong and, and even stronger on the climbs as well. So that they're not going to beat him in terms of, uh, you know, drag race to the line or whatever. They're going to have to use some sort of tactics and not exactly movie star's strong point throughout the years, but, uh, you know, no doubting those riders have it in them to work to each other's benefit if they can. Um, tactically to overhaul Roglic and, and I think uh, for Mas you know he's been knocking on the door a few times he was he second or third in the Vuelta a few years back with with quick step so second so you know he, he he's already been on the podium here it it has to be all in for the win I believe and and the you know it's kind of Roglic is kind of showing like unless he has a really bad day which he's also prone to in the third week of the Grand Tour he you know he, he, they're they're not going to beat him just an outright power I don't think yeah I think that the composition of the riders who is who are contending right behind Roglic is better for a uh, for making it an entertaining race than it was at the Tour uh, because at the Tour with with Carapaz and with uh, Vingago sitting there neither one had ever been on the podium at the Tour de France before Vingago was had never really done anything close to anything like what he did um, whereas at this Vuelta Enric Mas has already been second he doesn't need a second again he he wants to win and Miguel Angel Lopez has been on the podium of multiple Grand Tours before and I think for both of those riders hopefully that means they're not going to settle for that this time they're really going to try to win the race even if it means gambling that they're not going to finish on the podium at all hopefully that means we're going to see some attacks and you know Miguel Angel Lopez is a rider who uh, in particular who does attack he is a very aggressive rider he lights things up in the climbs and I'll have plenty of opportunities to do it. So hopefully, I don't want to hype it up and then have it all not work out. But hopefully they will uh, try to keep things interesting to actually go for the win here and, you know, attack, counterattack like they, they have the, uh, they're, they're currently set up to do. We'll, we'll see if that happens. The the 28 seconds and the minute and a half that the two Movistar riders are behind Roglic is also not the five minutes that uh, Pogaccia had in the tour. So uh, it certainly uh, it, it looks like we should be in for an exciting second half of the Vuelta. I think Enric Maas is, I, I've been really impressed with the way that he's ridden and he's also not, an, he's not a terrible time trialist. He's not going to beat Roglic in that last time trial, but it's not something where he needs to get, you know, four minutes to not lose the race in the TT. 
Miguel Angel Lopez maybe a little bit more in that direction because he's really not very good at time trials. Uh, but Moss, I think, can at least say to himself, all right, I maybe I need a minute and a half or two minutes ahead of that last time trial as opposed to four, uh, which, again, hopefully will convince him that he actually has a chance of winning here and, and to try something. I think uh, Lopez actually has to do like a Lachlan Martin and get to the time trial five days before the race. <laughs> Uh, should we talk about Ineos and how they just haven't really had it? It's been kind of surprising. I felt like uh, Yates looked really good early on. He's still there. I think the, the question is whether he's been close. He just hasn't really been better. Hendrik Moss has really been the only rider who's actually taken time out of Roglic. Uh, and then Bernal, I think it's one of two things with Bernal. Either Bernal is just not in, in shape and that he's not really going to contend for the win because he was clearly off the back on stage nine, he limited his losses. He's not out of the GC picture from a time perspective. You know, he's he's at Gambernal. He could still come back if he's feeling strong enough, but he didn't look very good. Um, so either he just doesn't have it right now, or I'm hoping he's planning to ride into form here, and this is a really hard second half of the race. Maybe, again, uh, I'm hoping this is the case, even though I don't want to overhype it. Maybe he's going to get better as the race goes along because this is a race where you need to be at your very best in the, in the final week. Uh, and, you know, Roglic is coming off of a pretty extended run of form. Yeah, he didn't do the whole tour, but he did do quite well at the Olympics. And Bernal, on the other hand, is kind of coming off of an extended break. Uh, my hope is, I think I'm kind of hoping against hope here, that he will be better as the race goes on. But we'll see. I, I hope that, yeah, he, he does ride into form. But looking at him uh, at was it yesterday's stage, he just doesn't seem to have that... Um not killer instinct, but that little bit of bite to him. He was definitely suffering big style. And it's a lot to ask to go into like the second half of the race and hope that, well, hope that you're going to bring back nearly two minutes on Roglic because he's looking in stellar form at the moment. As as Ronan says, there's what, three, three mountain stages, there, four mountain stages left for that time trial. It's a lot, it's a lot to ask especially in the temperature that they're having. It's absolutely savage. We've seen videos of them dumping, well, basically doing the ice bucket challenge before rolling out on a stage. Don't tell me you've just started that again. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Got to keep cool in Spain. Can we talk a little bit also about Bahrain Victorious? Yeah, Jack Haig uh, has been... Uh, I don't want to say lifesaver because he's only fourth, but he has kind of helped them stay in the game here despite Mikel Landa's, I was going to say inevitable collapse, but I feel bad about that because I do like Mikel Landa, uh, but it does kind of seem like it's inevitable at this point. Uh, so they still have a rider in the top five, thanks to Jack Haig, which is, uh, it's not a, a stunning development because he's a great rider, but he was not expected, at least by the rest of us, to be their, their top guy coming into this race. Meanwhile, Damiano Caruso going out and taking another big stage win. What a season he's had. Uh, you know, at this point in his career, he's somebody who's been around for quite a while in the professional peloton and has been kind of a nearly man for so long. He was you know, second at Torino, second at the Tour de Suisse. He's been 10th at the Tour last year, but this year he goes out and wins stages at both the Giro and the Vuelta, finishes second at the Giro, and I think... Bahrain finally having some of their, you know, uh, many talented riders really turning out big results this year. And yeah, I, bo both of those guys, I think, have given this team something to be happy about in this race. Him sitting in fourth overall right now is is pretty exciting. I'm wondering what 
kind of the, the rest of the race is going to hold for him kind of being there in this position that not maybe that many people were expecting of him and whether he's going to be able to hold on. Cause there, yeah, there's only three or four summit finishes left, but basically every day in this race is a, is a GC day. This is not a, this is not an easy race and it's a lot of days to be on, you know, on your best. And Haig was looking really good coming into this year's tour de France. He had finished fifth at the Dauphiné. Um, but he, he's a rider who, who can do great things in a, in a GC uh, who hasn't had the, you know, the most opportunities I would say to actually lead a team. And all of a sudden he finds himself there and I'm looking forward to him kind of seeing what he can do uh, because he's got to, I mean, if you look at the teams in this race, I think Bahrain has this, maybe the strongest all around team with the number of like heavy hitters they have on that squad. He's actually got a really good team around him, uh, which is kind of cool. And I'm hopeful that he's able to kind of keep it up. Fascinating to see what he can do the rest of this race. I think, um, I think he's got the tools and especially like you said, the team to be able to back him, but it, it's still a long race to go. Yeah. I don't, I don't think Haig is going to win the Vuelta. So I don't want, you know, this to get blown out of proportion, but it, it, this is kind of a, for me, it's like a Gegenhardt situation because Gegenhardt very young was identified as a super talent who was going to be, you know, the next big thing. And it took him quite a while to actually get really any results at all. Um, he, he, he spent a number of years there, not really putting up big results and then eventually he went out and won the Giro when the, when the opportunity presented itself. And I, I don't, like I said, I don't think Haig is going to win this race, but he's a similar situation. He was second at the Tour de l'Avenir all those years ago. Uh, he spent quite a few years at Mitchelton doing fine, but not really getting any huge results, not really getting a lot of wins. Uh, and then now, you know, the opportunity presents itself for him to lead a team in a grand tour. And I'm hoping that he kind of takes it and, and runs with it because he just hasn't had a lot of those. Yeah. Big chances yet. He's gonna do the. He's gonna be the Ben O'Connor of the Vuelta, is he? We're all nodding our heads, but I guess the listeners can't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing with the Bahrain victorious team, I know there's a lot of people questioning their performance at the moment, but you sort of look back historically wise, and like last year was well, not the greatest for them, but I do feel this year does feel like it's a um, a year where I'm wondering if. What Rod Ellingworth, when he came over from Ineos uh, at the end of, well, middle way through 2019, over to, uh, from, from Ineos over to Bahrain to set up the McLaren deal and sort all that out, whether this is sort of the uh, accumulation, the work of all that effort over the past, what, 18 months, but nearly two years, I suppose. Admittedly, he's left, but he's obviously left a bit of a legacy, I, I would have said for them to be performing the way they are. They definitely seem a different team to what they uh, were last year, at least. And yes, I know there's the old whole situation with Poe hanging over the heads. But do you think it's sort of a, a legacy thing? Um, not so much a legacy. Do you think it's just the results of possibly yeah, the past 18 months, two years worth of work of somebody who's now not at the team, but put all the uh, protocols into procedure for things to w actually work and it's, they're coming to fruition now. It's also, you know, last year was a really weird year and I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say we could just throw out all the results from 2020, but it was a really strange season. And, you know, this team could have had the parts in place at the end of 2019 and we, we might not have known just because of the way that a bunch of races went in 2020 and, and riders had their seasons entirely kind of overturned from the norm. So it, it could be, 
that that they did have the pieces in place in last year that just didn't have a chance to show it. And, you know, maybe Rod Ellingworth had a big part in that last year and we just didn't know. I think there there definitely could be an element of that, Dave. Yeah, like it's uh, you know, obviously a team that has a budget and that behind it, but, you know, historically hasn't hasn't performed to the same level as we might have expected. But then, you know, at last year's Tour de France, we did see a change in approach. We've seen a similar change in approach at the, the Giro, which came after the Tour last year, where I think Peo Bilbao was one of the sort of standout performances of, of the race as well. And, and at the time, a lot of that sort of step up in performance was accredited to Rod Ellingworth. Uh, and, you know, that that, that doesn't just disappear uh, over over the course of one winter. If, if the new sort of management in the team can maintain that sort of mentality, I guess, then there's no reason why they couldn't have built on that, despite the fact that Rod Ellingworth moved back to Ineos. It, it could be something that he's developed that is now leading to, to all the success that we see now. And then, of course, success breeds success, doesn't it? And when you see you know, the team sort of regalvanized after Landa crashed out in stage four of the Giro and they went on to win... Uh, every stage of the Giro twice and finished second overall that then led to you know I imagine a great team spirit within within the Bahrain Victoria squad that they brought into the Dauphiné they brought into the Tour and they've you know when things are going well it's sort of easy to keep things going well it's when things are really really difficult that that you know teams really struggle so yeah it could be just a you know a, a consequence of all those things going right uh, when you know one small thing could have went wrong somewhere near the start of that sequence and, and spoiled it all but we've just seen that they've built on every bit of success time after time and yeah yesterday Caruso came up trumps again with a 70 kilometer attack um you know you need you need to have the confidence to go for a move like that uh and you know if, if I guess that's possibly part of the success that we're seeing here now also if you're uh if you're picking riders in the fantasy league uh i think byron victorious is the team to keep an eye on because there's a bunch of breakaway days probably coming up really i think we, and we can talk about this in a bit almost any stage with mountains is a potential breakaway day in this race and there are quite a few of them uh in andalusia in the days coming up and i think if you look at Bahrain's roster they just they have like five guys who could win a, a breakaway mountain stage right now uh and and so i i don't think we've seen the last of Bahrain, you know contending for stage wins in this race so far I do, th- I do think also there's a certain element of uh, failure is not an option here when your name is victorious. So <laughs> <laughs> just to avoid the embarrassment of the name, they have to be incredibly victorious this year. You're right. At the start of the year, we, I think we were ready to um, ridicule them, but they've proved us very wrong. I think breakaways is an interesting thing to talk about, Dane, um, for not just the Volta, but for... For all the Grand Tours this year, you pointed out that there's been quite a few successful breakaways. It's kind of felt like this year, if there's an opportunity for a breakaway to stay away, it feels like it, it has way more often than, I don't know, two, three, four years ago. Um, all the Grand Tours have just been one breakaway stage after another in the mountains. It seems like most of the high mountain days uh, where in years past we might have seen the GC riders battling for the stage win, it's been all about the breakaway guys battling for stage wins. And even in some of the one-day races, there have been long-range attacks that have worked out. And, you know, the, the riders who were kind of hoping to hold on and, uh, you know, win the race in a, in a reduced sprint, as often happens in, in the one-day races, you know, the, those guys have been 
disappointed. Uh, and, and I think that's really interesting. And I, I kind of wondering what factors have kind of led to that, why we see so many breakaway riders winning this year, uh, particularly in the high mountains and the grand tours. Like that's the most common time we've seen that. Um, my, my thought is that even though the Ineos Grenadiers have been uh, putting in tempo at the front way more than they should be, I mean, it seems like they don't know how not to do that. Uh, I, I still think they're not doing it as much as they used to. And I think other teams maybe don't know how to react to that. And that's allowing teams to, that's allowing uh, riders in the breakaway to, to stay clear maybe because not a lot of teams have kind of taken up the slack uh, early in the day. Late in the day, Ineos is still riding on the front on the climbs even when they're, you know, two minutes down on GC, which doesn't make any sense. But I do think there's a little bit less of it than maybe normal. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why it is that way, but I think it's fascinating. There's also this, the fight to get into the breakaways in the beginning of the stages is also a lot more aggressive than I think um, the racing is really used to, which might mean that once the breakaway goes, the Peloton is less um, organized to try to bring it back later in the race because like the stage that uh, Michael Storer won, um, over the weekend stage seven, it was the fight to get into the break was just insane. It was most of the stage was a fight to get into the breakaway. And, uh, that's something that we saw a lot at the tour this year as well. It's just down to something that we were saying on a previous podcast with the younger generation, not wanting to race like the older generation when it was very, uh, robotic, very pre-planned. They they want a race bikes aggressively. Is it is it back back to that again? I think there's more factors than just it having been than than just the kind of dominating um, presence of even heck postal service all the way through uh, Ineos. I think it's more than just that. Um, kind of line up on the front attitude. I think there's more factors that go into it than just that, but that's definitely one of them. I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head a bit as well, Abby, with you know the, the starts to so many stages now are just so aggressive. And where in previous Grand Tours, we would have hoped for you know one or two stages where the fight for the breakaway was just full on for 60, 70 kilometers, and, and we would be in awe of those stages. It seems like nearly every stage now is just like total chaos for the first 100k and then you know the the a break finally like it's not that a break is let go anymore it's almost like a break forces itself clear and then there is no team in the in the peloton who is prepared to put in the effort to continue controlling that to, to you know bring it back for a finish uh, at that point I, th I think that is a big part of it but i also wonder is it sort of a, a consequence of a few different factors and you know with Sagan sort of his powers dwindling a little bit and a few riders like him like Valverde and others perhaps though well we've seen Bora control races uh far too much sometimes so perhaps not that but I, I still wonder if that and then also just what we've seen happen with Jumbo Visma and Roglic last year at the tour to have controlled the race uh so well from start until the third last day and then lose it in the time trial are teams not as prepared to put all their eggs in in that basket as as maybe previously was was the case i think that's a really good point about sagan and valverde uh and and maybe one or two other kind of punchier guys who can handle a, a tough 
up and down stage and whose teams would have controlled the race in the past. Because now that you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I, there's just nobody whose team has been doing that in the past year. Um, whether Sagan's in the race or not, there there usually have been one or two riders who have that similar skill set. And uh, you know, this race it's Michael Matthews, but I don't think we've seen his team. And there haven't been that many stages that are perfect for him yet. I mean, it's been either hard climbs or sprints. Uh, but just generally across the year, I, I don't think teams like that or, or, or riders like that, I don't think their teams have, have been taking up that mantle so much. Yeah, and there, there's maybe also the factor that with Sagan's powers dwindling a bit, that riders are, you know, they're, they're not having to focus as heavily on the races that Sagan isn't in. <laughs> and that means that there's more, you know, more possibility across across more races and, and they're not as afraid to go up against Sagan as as perhaps in, in the past. So although it, you know you wouldn't like to give one one rider the credit for changing the whole way that professional cycling races, but I, I do think that there there is that element of play there. But if there is one rider who's gonna change the way that racing is raced, feels I feel like Sagan is regardless of how he's been riding the last two years or so he's still an absolute legend in the sport i mean he he still won the world championships three years in a row right oh 100 yeah that i don't think it really changes that but at the time when he was running three world championships in a row just perhaps that you know there there was there was more of a fear factor about racing saga and then there perhaps is now and and we you know we've seen he he is uh, he is certainly more beatable than he than he was in the past. But then you know, all of a sudden he'll turn up at one stage of the Giro and spend five hours in the break and do the last ten k solo and and win the stage when there's only twenty left in the group behind. Uh, so it, I don't think we've seen the end of him just yet. Dane, is there anything else with the Vuelta that we should talk about? I think the one other thing I'd I'd kind of had in mind was the, the sprint battle and the way that it's been Jasper Philipson and Fabio Jakobsen and the way that Arnaud Demar has basically disappeared from the sprint battle, which has been pretty interesting. Uh, I don't have a lot more to say about that. I, I, it's mostly, I think, been his lead out, uh, which, uh, you know, Groupama FTJ, Groupama FTJ, they don't really have a lot of other stars, so you would think they could get this right because he's their, he's their guy to win races, but they have not been getting it right so far, so something something to keep an eye on for the next few sprint stages, whether they can avoid boxing in their own sprinter in the finales. In other cycling news, uh, the women's CMAC tour is starting this week. The next round of the women's world tour. It's a six day, five stage and a prologue race in Holland. There's a lot of women coming back from the Olympics and uh, getting back into racing, including Mariana Voss, um, Amy Peters. There's a bunch. It's going to be a really exciting race. It's a lot of sprints, so Lorena Webus is definitely one to watch out for. And, uh, yeah, should be a pretty exciting race. Megan Jastrab will be doing her first race with Team DSM. Very, very exciting. Speaking of American track cyclists in Europe, I think Chloe Dagger is her first European race coming up no you're shaking your head what happened no she was on the provisional start list for the cmac ladies tour but they um the canyon stram team released their actual start list and she she is not on it so still not sure when she's going to be making her european debut with canyon stram but i would assume that she's over here or at least getting ready for the world championships coming up 
Speaking of races to come, actually, the Paralympics starts on Tuesday. So that is super exciting. Greta Nemanis and I chatted on the Freewheeling podcast. Might throw it on the regular podcast feed also about the different categories and the different races there are for the paracyclists. And actually, did you know that Paralympics actually means parallel to the Olympics? Fun fact. Every day's a school day. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay, so moving on to Nerd Nugget. Do we have a jingle yet? We I don't do think we have, have a jingle a jing- yet. We do not have a jingle for Nerd Nugget specifically. So if anyone out there would like to submit a jingle specifically for Nerd Nugget, we would be happy to receive it. So James, what have we got for Nerd Nugget today? Well, seeing as how the Vuelta is going on right now and how Orbea is a Basque company, I guess it seems appropriate then that uh, they have quietly rolled out a new bike in this year's race. Uh, their existing Orca Aero has been, it's been around since, since I think like 2017 or so. It's getting a little bit old. Um, so it's maybe no surprise that they have a new, what appears to be an Orca Aero, Aero race bike in the race. Um, they haven't made any announcements. There's no official information or anything right, right now. So all we have is a handful of pictures. Um, but yeah, it looks to be a, you know, much more aero bike than the bike that's out right now. Um, it's kind of what you'd expect. This tube sections are deeper, uh, dropped, dropped seat stays, dropped chain stays, and, you know, deeper down tube fully concealed cabling up front, disc brake only from what I can tell. Um, we, already, we don't even really know for certain that it's called the Orca Aero, but I'm not really sure what else it would be called. Um, but uh, I'm in the process of scribbling that up right now. So probably by the time you hear this podcast, that article should hopefully be live on cyclingtips.com. So make sure you go check that out. It does have those lovely internal cables that we all love, doesn't it, James? Uh, it's my favorite. My favorite. I, I have to admit, I mean, as, as much as I rag on fully internal cabling, uh, it does look really cool, which for the vast majority of consumers is probably all they care about, at least initially. Um, but that being said, I still would prefer that they didn't exist. But that's just me. I will say Ronan sent us a photo via uh, Slack the other day of a bulb and he was working on internally rooted cables and you could definitely see, yes, the tears... Uh, sort of form that have landed on the handlebars close to all the electrical cabling. Look like you're having a lot of fun fitting that up, mate. Yes. Uh, Zach, I, I put a picture of that bike up, actually, and Zach Edwards from Nerd Alert Podcast commented, uh, the worst brakes to work on ever, to which I replied, this bike has brakes, question uh, mark, because I certainly haven't felt uh, them working well ever. So, yeah, internally, internally rooted Brakes, uh, that, that is rim brake to be fair now, and this new bike is disc brake, so uh, should perform a lot better. Uh, but certainly for a race bike like this, I can, I can appreciate internal cable routing. Um, I think if I was lining up for a race and I had the previous Orca with the externally routed cables and I had the option to go to the new one, if it is a new Orca with internally routed cables, uh, that is a decision I would make. But, of course, if I was lining up to race, I would also have a mechanic to work on it all for me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, one thing that this bike does not have, which is kind of, and it kind of amazes me that it's even able to leave from the start line, is it doesn't have, it doesn't have wake turbo, tur- wait, wake generators? Is that what they're called? Wake generators on the handlebar, which seems to be the, the new hot thing from, uh, from UK online brand Ribble. Uh, Ronan, what, what, do we, what do we know about these things besides the fact that they're very unusual looking? 
Uh, well, that's uh, it's a new Rebel Ultra SLR uh, aero bike that I think you're referring to. Uh, that was announced last week. Another story that I have written up and is probably going to be on the site by the time the listeners hear this podcast. But uh, although that is an out-and-out aero bike, much like the new uh, Orbea we've seen there, uh, the Rebel does feature some uh, fairly unique handlebars in that... Um, not only are they designed not to run bar tape on, uh, and they also have uh, direct mount brake levers. Yes, you heard that right, direct mount brake levers, not direct mount brakes, but actually the levers directly mount onto the handlebars. But those handlebars also have uh, a design integrated into the tops that Rubble claims can create a wake behind them that the rider's legs can hide in uh, and therefore or thereby increase the aerodynamic efficiency of the total system um so basically what they've done is they've intentionally made the very very front end of the bike less arrow to supposedly make the whole thing rider plus bike more arrow pretty much that's that's the that's the claim yeah if you took the rider or the bike in isolation they would be less aerodynamic but when you put the rider behind these new handlebars Apparently, it, it uh, improves the overall aerodynamics of, of the total system, uh, to which I'm not quite sure. So when do we? Yeah, when do we get the press release from someone saying that a massive handlebar bag makes you faster? I think that has been. I think uh, I've heard that discussed previously, uh, and certainly we've heard uh, some writers get very creative with those really large uh, numbers you get for sportive events, and that that have to go on the front of the handlebars. Um, but with this, what the rule of thumb I have always worked by myself, and I'm no aerodynamicist, but the rule of thumb I have always worked to is, if you add something, it is unlikely to decrease the drag. <laughs> of uh, the aerodynamic drag on a frame uh it's it's very very difficult to make uh to uh, to make something like an aerodynamically profiled handlebar bigger uh and also have it uh more aerodynamic so i i also am kind of curious about at what speed this actually um can create this wake uh, because it, it seems to me like something straight out of formula one where you know the the high speeds that we're we're working with there could actually have such an effect, but for most of us going at, uh, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 miles per hour, it seems a bit more difficult to to see how that might work. Plus it's a handlebar. You change positions all the time. Surely it's like designed to be aero when, I don't know, when you're in the drop. So once you, when, you, when you're not in the drop, surely that drag is going to kicking oh, that, that the bars that, designed that was the other part of the uh, that was the other part of the release on this bike another feature on this bike it, it actually comes with like little velcro gloves and there's a matching velcro strip on the drop section on the handlebar so you you're actually only allowed to hold onto the bars in that one position i mean it's a little bit unfortunate if you have to you know drink or you know get off your bike or anything like that but it's more or, if, so. or if you have to crash you can't or if, let go of the bike well, I mean, you don't want the bike to just go like careening off into the into the woods, right? I mean, it's safer that way. We we should say that there is no such gloves provided with this bike. <laughs> no, they're not. But anyway, <laughs> by the time you hear this podcast, as Ronan said, that should be live on the site as well. So make sure you go check that out too. What I will give Ripple though is that it, it's amazed me that it, it's Ripple that are doing this, and it's Ripple that have got to the point where they can do this. Because I remember Ripple as a brand when it was a, a small warehouse 
just on the outskirts of Preston in the northwest of the UK, selling, yeah, just to, they'd buy a bunch of cheap alloy steel frames in from wherever, spray them up, stick the name on and send them out the door. And they did sell that business many years, probably only probably only about five, six years ago, maybe longer actually. Um, and they've turned it into, well, what I suppose in essence is going to be the canyon of the UK or what they, I'm guessing they're wanting to be the canyon of the UK. It's, it's a massive it's change. It's probably worth, yeah, it's probably worth mentioning had it not been for these wake generators, we would probably be commenting on you know, how much of a step forward this is for Rebel to unveil such a, what looks to be such a, you know, aerodynamic and racing focused focused bike because what they have had previously certainly hasn't been at the same level as this bike appears to be um but when your handlebars have wake generators that's obviously what we're <laughs> going to talk about I, it, it's worth mentioning too i think uh maybe in, for no surprise to people who are familiar with the brand but the pricing is also super aggressive i mean the bike isn't uh, the bike certainly isn't particularly light uh, runner. I think you said there are two levels of this frame and the, the cheaper one is like 1200 grams for the frame and the, the lighter one's like 1050 or something like that. So it's, it's not particularly super competitive in terms of weight compared to other bikes that are out there for top end stuff, but it's also a lot cheaper. Yeah, it certainly is. And that's what, you know, I, I've certainly been tempted by a few rebel frames down through the years because they are priced so, so competitively and, you know, they've always had a huge range of cyclocross and uh, all sorts of different uh, bikes for different disciplines. Uh, but this is the first time that they've had uh, an aero bike, you know, designed supposedly in-house in that, that, you know, is is as aggressive looking as this bike is. And again, as you said, James, is so aggressively priced as well. It is it is not a cheap bike, <laughs> but compared to other bikes in this uh, segment, it's certainly uh, certainly well-priced. Well, that's all we got. That's all we got. That's that's a pretty pretty hefty nerd nugget, I have to say. Yeah, that's a lot to take in, to be <laughs> honest. I wonder um, what this new bike means for uh, the women's team. Drops the call, which is hoping to be world tour next year, and rides Ribble. Of course, we don't know if they're going to ride it next year, but. That's true, but I'm I'm also curious to see whether these wake generator things actually meet UCI approval. Uh, so it'll be, I don't know, even if they are still sponsored by Ribble, even if they are going to be using this new bike next year, uh, I don't know for sure that we'll actually see those handlebars in the UCI World Tour. So we'll see. So they could just be, could just be a bike for getting fast down the calf on. Yes, possibly. Potentially. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Cycling Tips Podcast. We will be back, who knows, maybe later this week if the Vuelta is exciting, maybe next week. We'll see. I'm not making any promises we can't keep. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.